Hello, I'm Dr. Ranj Singh and welcome to another episode of Think Which Service from NHS Shropshire, Telford and Rekin. I'm chatting with other health professionals to get the best advice on how you can look after yourself and, if you need help, which is the best NHS service to use. Now, we all know there's a range of local NHS services and you don't always need to see a GP or go to A&E and we're here to help you work it all out. In this episode, we're talking about one of my favourite subjects, mental well-being. And with me is Alison Bussey, who is Chief Nursing Officer for NHS Shropshire, Telford and Rekin. She has worked for the NHS for over 40 years. Now that is impressive. Also here is Caroline Dugan-Williams, who is an accredited cognitive and behavioural psychotherapist, an accredited CBT supervisor, a registered mental health nurse and graduate member of the British Psychological Society. And if that's not enough, she is also the clinical lead for IAPT, which stands for Improving Access to Psychological Therapies in Shropshire, Telford and Rekin. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. So we've got quite a meaty topic today. We've got a lot to discuss, but I like to start off with something a bit lighter and hopefully finish on something a bit lighter. And what I want to know from both of you, starting with you, Alison, is what do you love most about your job? So... As you say, 40 years, that, that's quite some, some undertaking. I, I can hardly believe it myself because I'm only 21. But what do I love most about my job? Um, like Caroline, I'm a mental health nurse and I have spent many, many years working with some absolutely fabulous people from all walks of life. But the most rewarding is actually been working with people who have needed to access our services. And I have got, you know, fabulous memories over the years of some great people that I've come into contact with. Many years ago, it was in the Victorian institutions. um, And I can still tell you stories about the people that I came into contact with. And I learned so much from them. And clinically, my background was, um, it, it was both in acute mental health, but also older people with dementia. And why did I love working with older people with dementia? Because the person that I was working with was not the person who they had been. And I'm really nosy. I really like to know about people. Um, So we'll find any which way to get to know that person who, and, and with somebody who is in that cognitive decline, actually knowing who they were so that I can be the best that I can be to work to support them and to help their lives to improve. You must have seen some changes over the last 40 years. That's uh, oh, yes. that's I mean the NHS has evolved, changed, reshaped, reformed, especially yeah. mental health services. They've definitely um, come a very long way, I would say. Yes, they absolutely have. So what motivated you to want to work in mental health in the first place? So I started off initially as a, an adult nurse um, and given what I've just shared with you about me being really nosy, back in the day when when you were working as a general nurse, it was very, very different in terms of how you work now. And it was often the person, the, the, the person became a diagnosis rather than the whole person. And because I'm nosy, I wanted to know the whole person, which is actually what drew me into mental health. And I came in to do my mental health training in order to go back to be the best general nurse that I could be. Um, But 
actually mental health services had other plans for me and wanted to keep me because of my core skill set around physical health um, and how I could work within the mental health services, both duly registered. Um, So that is what drew me into mental health in the first place and then actually just that passion for working with people who are often at the most vulnerable times in their life and also their families. Yeah and Caroline you have several very very important roles as well what do you love most about your jobs? I think for me it's um, it's the privilege of changing someone's life for the better And that's the only way I can really put it because, you know, uh, everyone who I see or come into contact with, and I've done this job now, um, not far behind Alison, um, so 33 years. And um, I remember I was told many years ago when I was was a student nurse that, oh, you're enthusiastic now, but you'll get cynical as uh, as you get older. And I haven't. And I think because uh, the privilege for me is that everyone who passes through our doors will remember me for a lifetime and so it for me that moment that window is absolutely golden to maximize that opportunity in that moment that that person will remember you for the better or the best outcome Um, and so for me it's just that privilege of um, working with someone's life at a point of either crisis or someone wanting a change In, in psychotherapy it might be that somebody is looking for a change in their life. So yeah, that's what I enjoy the most about it. What inspired you to get into it 33 years ago? The short story is <laughs> I started my career in the NHS when I was very young. I was 19, 20, something like that. And all my friends worked at a, a local, it used to be a home for children with learning disabilities. It was when the Victorian institutions were closing down. Uh, It looked like a great job and uh, I thought I'd follow in their footsteps and go and work there. And uh, within a few months, I absolutely loved it. You know, I really enjoyed it and um, had the best years uh, working with people with learning disabilities. And then um, I was very fortunate to be supported to go and do my nurse training. And uh, initially it was uh, training for people with learning disabilities. And then I worked on a psychiatric ward and it changed my life. And that was the point that I thought I want to do this. Wow! It just it just pull, it pulled you in. It's a it's a similar story with me in pediatrics, trying various different things, and then it's the it, it's not just you you gravitate towards a speciality, but it kind of pulls you in as well. It's a it's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. Right? Let's talk mental health proper. Alison, what does that term define? For me, what that defines is the symbiosis I'll use that word with (laughs) physical health because the two are so entwined and you cannot have good physical health without good mental health and vice versa yeah so it is about how that whole health and well-being about how you are how you feel within your your environment your world if you like um and how your relationships with people um that's not to say that it won't always be great you know because let's face it life gets in the way for us all you know we we live our lives and it isn't always straightforward but it is is that ability to be able to just have that that lovely kind of balance between your physical health and your mental health. And so you feel content. 
and happy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. So I think often, especially in the past, people have focused so much on physical health, haven't they? And, and kind of forgotten that mental health is just as important and the two are so intricately linked. You can't have one without the other. And there's been lots of misconceptions around mental health, I think, over the years. What are the main ones that you've heard, Caroline? I think stigma, I think he's, he's still with us. You know, a lot of the time in in, uh, in my consultation room when we're talking about people being open about the mental health um, or, or mental ill health, because I see mental health is a, is a continuum where, you know, mental health is at one end and at the very extreme end is mental illness um, and how we all gravitate up and down that continuum at any given time. Um, but I think the big one that holds people back from being open is stigma and still the feeling that people will be judged negatively uh, and people will judge them negatively for having emotional problems or emotional difficulties or emotional challenges. Because that's what we're talking about, really, when we're talking about um, uh, going up and down that mental health continuum. It really does come down to uh, someone's emotions and, and their relationship with their emotions. Um so I think I think that's probably the biggest one from people seeking help. Many times people will say, I'm keeping it to myself. I haven't told anybody. And, um, you know, we have a saying that depression is the illness of the strong because many people come in and say, I feel weak. That's one of the big misconceptions. And you say, well, okay, so how have you got in this position? Well, I've been doing this. I've been trying to sort this out. I've been sorting my bills out. I've been, I've had this and it's all getting on top of them. But the resilience they have in holding that up for so long. And then at some point for all of us, we're going to have that breaking point. So I think the big misconception is I'm weak because I have mental ill health. That actually is not true. Um, many of our, um, clients um, are resilient in lots of other ways. Uh, they just don't recognise it in themselves. And it takes a, actually takes a great deal of strength to admit that you're not okay. And often we say that the hardest step is that first step of asking for help. I love that concept of a continuum between mental health and mental illness. And we're all somewhere along there. And actually we move up and down that all the time. It can affect absolutely anybody and I've heard people say oh well it's just in your mind it's okay it's not a big problem you know and the, the truth is when you go and break your arm no one says oh you've just broken your arm get over it do they they don't say pull yourself together um, so when you break your mind or your mind breaks for whatever reason we should treat it in exactly the same way Alison what are the sort of misconceptions that you've heard along the years so I think I'll use an example of in the workplace a colleague who um, or somebody working in your organisation has a, a mental health need. And there's a, that, and it goes back, I think, to kind of relates well to what Caroline's point is about stigma. So staff won't necessarily share that for the fear of people seeing them as somehow a little bit weaker. Um, but there's, once it is known, there's this, there has been this belief that actually this person can't work and will never work over the years. Um, and that is so not true. 
you know, just because you have some kind of breaking point, as Caroline has said, or some mental ill health at that point in time doesn't mean to say that you cannot have that hope to recover um, and and to um, be supported to carry on working. Yeah, absolutely. So if we're sort of bouncing up and down, moving around this continuum, Caroline, how do you know when let's say, a mental health difficulty, which we all experience to some extent on a daily basis. Um, How do you know when a difficulty becomes a problem? Well, again, that is a continuum in itself also. So um, the services that I work in, uh, NHS Talking Therapy Services, used to be called IAPS and we're rebranding that to NHS Talking Therapies. We, um, we deal with common mental health problems. So they're called common mental health problems because they are the common cold of mental health problems, so anxiety and depression. So we use an analogy which is uh, like is a stress bucket. And if you imagine a bucket and there are taps above that bucket, those taps are on and they can be things like, you know, uh, what we call intrapersonal stress. So stress inside yourself, you know, keeping things to yourself, you know, worrying about things. And then there's um, interpersonal stress, stress between two people. Um, so relationships, basically. So they may cause them. So these taps start going on. Bills, you know, childcare, whatever. And all these taps go on. And they go into this bucket. Now, if the bucket, like a water bus, if you like, has a tap at the bottom, and we imagine those taps as coping skills, um, if those taps are on at the bottom, the water never builds up. It just stays in the middle. And there's a bit between the middle bit and the top bit we call the buffer zone. And that is the water can go up, the water can go down, it'll never go over the top. But I guess what we see when we see it developing into a difficulty, those taps at the bottom are shut off. There are no coping skills. There's no outlets. So the water keeps building and building and eventually it goes over the top. And um, that's and that's individual, that over the topness is individual for individual people and in individual circumstances. For some people who've never experienced a depressive episode before, they're their recognition could be that they start to notice that they're not sleeping very well or that they have uh, they get up earlier than normal they're getting up at five in the morning or four in the morning they don't understand why they might notice that they're worrying more but the misconception you were talking about before is people come to clinic because they have a misconception you have to be really really ill um to get help so they wait too long so um, so this thing about it being individual to individual people, the other thing is people say, well, my problems aren't as bad as other people because they imagine this really mentally ill person and then problems aren't as bad as that person. I don't want to bother you. I don't want to trouble you. So it's those little early warning signs. What um, I would say a departure from what is your norm around everything that Alison was saying in terms of maintaining well-being. If you're finding that... Um, I guess a medical term, but that kind of homeostasis, that equilibrium, that balance starts to tip and you start to notice that balance tipping. Worry, thinking about the past, sleep problems, uh, not being a feeling of internal stress and tension. They can be early warning signs to it's time to seek help like talking therapies at that point. I get asked that question quite a lot, actually. How do I know when something's developing into a problem and you're right it affects different people differently but as a rough gauge I say if something persists 
if it starts to impact on your life, on your de- your ability to do your day to day things, and importantly, your ability to enjoy life, that's when you really need to start paying attention and thinking. Is this something I need to address and do I need to go and speak to someone? And there is a lot that we can do for ourselves, isn't there, Alison? What sorts of things can people do to improve their mental well-being? There's many things that you can do. Again, it, it boils down to the individual. So it's about being really, really aware of what things, what the things in your life make you happy. Yeah, number one. That's that's a really important one. Now, using my own example, I've got two very beautiful whippets, and so they they run very fast. I've, I'm very slow. Uh, so, but going out, being outside, I'm really really privileged. I re- live in a beautiful part of the world where there are some fabulous walks, and, and it's being outside is something that I love doing, taking those dogs out. Um, but there's also something about having my own time as well. So, and I am an introvert. I know that. So I, I get really, really drained by lots of people <laughs> all of the time. So because I've got that insight, it's like, what do I need to do to take myself out of human company for a while goes back to the whippets but it's also um you know it might be going to have my nails done get my hair done or whatever Uh, reading as well is something that is really important to me um just in my own little space Uh, and i think it's having that it's it's what you were saying ranj um about the just when things are becoming you're becoming preoccupied with something and it just won't leave you. You go to sleep thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it or you don't sleep at all because of it. That's there's big alarm bells, big red flag there. So go and talk to someone about that. That's some great tips about what you can do for yourself. Flip it on the other side. What about people around us, friends, family, loved ones? What can they do to support someone who's going through difficulty? It's knowing how people are and keeping that in the forefront of your mind with people that you live with or your friends and seeing that they might be becoming a little bit different in terms of how they're interacting with you. Maybe someone who is wanting to speak to you or you're in contact with them and then they suddenly don't want to. That's a little red flag there, what's going on. And just being there, open-minded, listening to people. And I think it's that and asking, are you okay? but not forcing people to talk at that point absolutely I, I go one step further than saying are you okay I say what's the matter what's the matter because then you've just given I've just given you permission to tell me and because when whenever someone says are you okay we have this very English habit of saying I'm fine everything's good it's great yeah I'm, I'm wonderful <laughs> and sometimes it's not Caroline what would your tips be for the individual and for the people around them what I'd say is there are some people for whom problems uh, haven't gone away. They've become part of who they are. So one one problem I can think of that um, gets very normalised as, as being part of an, a normal human condition is worry. And people who come with what's called generalised anxiety tend to say, I've had it all my life. And then, you know, loved ones around the person says, well, they're always a worrier. They've always had problems with the nerves. So I think there's something about... Um, you know what's that? How you normalise these? Uh, how you normalise emotional problems in families to the to the point where the person doesn't feel they have a problem because it's been 
uh, normalized in some way, but actually the person's still struggling because they are, they do worry excessively. Like you said, it's about impact and what impact does it have? So I think, um, and for some people aren't going to have uh, families and they might be quite isolated. So it's for me, it's, it's whatever your community is and whoever you connect with, it's having that awareness, that kind of antennae, if you like, for when, as everything we've said, when someone starts to change or some or things start to alter, or if you're, you know, if you're providing a community service, because we can't forget the voluntary sector and our community services are very important, and somebody's always turning up at the um, the charity shop for a chat, you know, an indication that there may be some loneliness or they may have gone through uh, a bereavement and loss, and thinking about people as you go through the life cycle that you start to lose family and you start to lose friends and. It's how, uh, as a community, we can start to think about uh, noticing changes in people's behaviour. And um, uh, and that goes to like the, the local community pharmacy. It could be anybody, can't it? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up loneliness because I think it's something that many people have experienced, especially over the pandemic with lockdowns, isolations, loss of loved ones and friends and family. Um, it's definitely something we need to talk more about. And I think... It's definitely something we need to do more about as well. And recognise that, recognising that is so important. My top tip I've learned about looking after myself as a professional, and I'm, I'm sure if there's any healthcare professionals out there listening, you'll be familiar with this. It's okay to say no. We get so many demands and, and, and everyone does. We all have so many demands on ourselves and our time. It's okay to say no. Or if you don't want to say no, say not yet. That's that's been that's been key to to my well-being definitely at work. Okay, we're going to change tack slightly. Just thinking a bit broader now. I want to know how the conversation around mental health has evolved over your time in the NHS because obviously Caroline you've worked in the NHS for 33 years, Alison 40 years, and where do you see it going in the future? Starting with you, Caroline. I was thinking about this the other day funnily enough because I was I was thinking about you know, I'm a mental health nurse, we have psychologists and etc. And we have this very biomedical lens of our services and how our services are structured. Whereas I, I do wonder if the future we will see a generic mental health professional, you know, that something, you know, I'm a mental health nurse, but I do psychological therapy. I work in psychology services. Um, and actually, there are, I think there are core competencies that mental health professionals have and that goes to the voluntary sector as well, the charitable sector. And I do wonder if the way the services will be going will be, I mean, this isn't new stuff. I mean, we've been talking about this kind of, you know, R.D. Lang was talking about this in the 50s and 60s and just about, you know, do we, how do we depart from a very medical model uh, in how we deliver our services to be more community-based models Um that don't feel like there's a stigma about illness and, and, and wellness. And actually, I think a really good example is, um, you know, one of our um, units, uh, Redwoods, which you would not know that is a hospital site. You would just think it's a, you know, you, you would just stumble across it, community centre of some description, but you wouldn't really identify it as a hospital site. And I do hope that more mental health services go in the direction of maybe thinking about a generic mental health professional um that you know our specialty is such that you know um 
we can deliver a range of services to a range of problems, a range of difficulties. So that's kind of what I was thinking. And also maybe, you know, destigmatizing, being more community focused and being in the community and working with the, the voluntary and charitable sector a lot more, which we are doing and that's, that's picking up pace. But I think the Redwoods, yeah, is a good example of, you know, how I think services um, should be going in, in how they um, in how they appear and 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 um, that you know inpatient units don't have to be uh, uncomfortable places if you like you know, there's there's got to be some degree of um, what's the word you know the environment has to be right as well because that's all part of recovery it's the environment. So if we're saying that mental health affects everyone and everyone's got experience of it, it's about normalizing it and not othering it really integrating it into everyday life i like that idea of a kind of mental health gp it feels like it's it's the way to go so many of us could do with speaking to someone general practitioners already do a fantastic job but there's so much that they have to deal with already perhaps it is something we need to take a serious look at alison over your 40 years how has the conversation changed do you think around mental health and where do you see it going next? Yeah, so I think um, very similar to Caroline, actually. And although I, very early on in my career, I had the privilege of um, being part of a senior leadership team who actually closed a long stay hos- uh, several long stay hospitals actually down in Hertfordshire. Um, so I was really lucky um, working with some fabulous people and, and people using the service because I think that that is where we're things have significantly changed. I'll come back to that. Um, where we design, co-designed um, not only the new facilities, which was the replacement of much smaller hospital facilities, uh, but also community services, which didn't exist up until then. So I've seen a massive change in how community services are, are delivered. I think the role of um, people with lived experience of mental health is something that um, other parts of the health service could really embrace. And it's the creation of the peer support roles, the peer recovery roles in addiction services, um, directors of lived experience, whatever, which I know isn't is something that people just think, oh, what is that all about? Well, actually, what that is all about is about people who have that true experience, who can really relate and identify with people who are going through that similar journey. And it's that installation of hope on that journey of recovery which is really, really important for me. And where do I see things heading? And I think you you touched on it there with general practice, where there's some fabulous work going on, but it's those roles that are part of those primary care networks that we are seeing increasingly um, moving from what I would say was the more secondary mental health service into that primary care. And and the work that Caroline and her team are doing is pretty much that. Um, And it is working with those um, with, with the more common mental illnesses um, at that point. So that's where how I see things have really changed and the, f- the hope for the future of more of that to happen at the earlier intervention stage. Yeah, we definitely need that, especially earlier intervention, as you mentioned it there, because the s- services we have are under so much pressure already. We need to do something. I don't know exactly what the solution is going to be, but we do hear all the time about how mental health services are under immense pressure, the most pressure they've probably ever been under. Why do we think that is, Alison? What's going on? The raising of mental health 
and um, mental ill health has helped with earlier kind of um, approaches by people, which is a great thing. Uh, I think there has been an impact with the way in which we've had to live our lives in the last three years because of COVID-19. Uh, I think loneliness is a massive, massive issue. Um, it, it causes so much harm to people. And I do think that um, there's a real role for communities in that, you know, and lo smaller communities really thinking about that and being part of that solution as well. So I do, I think that it's that raising of awareness. We're seeing increasingly um, more young people with with mental health needs um, than we've ever done before. Um, and again, I think a lot of that is is down to a whole load of pressures that you know I didn't have back when I was young. Um, it's a very different life now, and social media is very much part of that as well. Um, and, and influences um, how people are thinking. And I think, you know, there's something as well around how, how, and it goes back, I think, to what Caroline beautifully put about how there is this sort of normalised, that there's been a normalisation within families of, of, of things that actually aren't normal. But on the opposite side, sometimes there is that kind of abnormalizing if that's a, that's not even a word is it but yeah. you know what i'm <laughs> saying there <laughs> um things that are actually normal you know and they are the usual experiences as we grow up and getting that balance is tricky isn't it because a lot of yeah. these experiences are part of human experience but recognizing when it's not okay when things are veering into difficult territory caroline so what services if if everything's under pressure right now if someone's listening and they really need to reach out and they really need support what services are available locally to support them nhs talking therapies because for me when we're thinking about how services look in the future more 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 talking therapies and it's been really encouraging the government have funded nhs talking therapies it's a cross-party commitment which has been really really good so for me you know it's about um you can self-refer to an, an nhs talking therapy service you don't need a gp referral how would you do that how would you go about doing that so uh wherever you are in the country uh you can go to uh, just go to google so if you put in shropshire talking therapy uh shropshire iapt shropshire cognitive behavior therapy it'll come up with um the mpft or midlands partnership or the NHS, wherever you are in the country, the NHS landing page. And then it will just say start self-referral and you can click on that. If you don't have access to technology, um, so a lot of people don't, then you can phone. And if you phone, you can get through to uh, a receptionist, uh, an administrator who will process that self-referral. Um, so it's really easy to self-refer to an NHS talking therapy service. But it's really important that, you know, we talked about the common cold of, of mental health difficulties. So we're looking at um, some more people, there's more people in the community that have the common cold of mental health difficulties, more people with depression um, and anxiety problems uh, and post-traumatic stress type problems as well. And they're the kind of people we would encourage to access NHS talking therapy services. Uh, obviously, if the problem gets worse than that and somebody's in a crisis um, and... Uh, you know, somebody just can't see, um, can't cope and maybe having thoughts to end their life, then 
then they need to contact a crisis service, a local crisis service, or attend a attend A and E in some in, if extreme emergencies. Exactly, that A and E is always there in in a crisis if you need them. Alison, any other services that you'd like to add to that that people could perhaps explore? So I think as well, don't forget things like the Samaritans. Yes. Yeah. You know, the voluntary sector and your friends or your family, you know, just just reach out. Um, No one should feel as though they have to keep anything that's bothering them in their head alone. There is always someone out there. And I've got a great friend, you know, so if something's bugging me, which it often does in the workplace, you know, I will speak with her. Um, And and that's what what you do because I I try to keep my work away from my home so you know it's finding that kind of connection as well yeah and if you don't have a friend that you can talk to there are so many helplines available Um, and there's the 111 online service that can point you in the direction of mental health support as well that's 111.nhs.uk if you don't know where to start that's a great place to get um, some pointers about where to go as well I think the other area that I might just add as well is if people have got a, a strong faith and it's the faith communities that they belong to as well there are those networks we shouldn't lose sight of as well Caroline were you about to add something then I guess it's the same thing. You know, there might be communities who who feel excluded, marginalised. So LGBTQ plus communities, for instance, and it's really important to to use what networks you have, and that you know, um, and that for us as NHS Talking Therapy Services, we're open to all. And um, and um, if we're not, then we, we change that and, and 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 try to modify so that we can get more people coming coming in. But I think it's really important if you're not part of a community, but a community of identity, it's to find some degree of support within within that so that you don't feel alone. And if we're not providing what you need, tell us. Tell us so we can adapt and we can change and we can try and accommodate as many people as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. There are so many great things in what you've said. There's so many useful pointers and tips. I'm sure people that are listening will have learned something, will find something helpful. Before we sign off, like I said, I want to finish on something a bit lighter as well, because we have talked about some heavy stuff. Um, important stuff, but it's very, very heavy. I want to know from both of you, starting with you, Alison, how do you personally find time to rest and refresh that is a very important thing for me (laughs) i feel like there's a story coming no there won't be no it's really simple i love the fact that you related ranch to your workplace and it's being able to say no and it so I first of all it because you know all of our working lives are really really incredibly busy um, but there has to come a point when it's no I haven't the capacity to do that or no I'm going to take some time out so that's the first thing um, and so that's how I find the time and it's also um, you know finding time with family as well for me um, so that's what I do and I plan my weekends Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And, and, and and it's not selfish, it's self-care. That's what it is. That's what I want to remind people. Caroline, what do you do personally to rest and refresh? Well, I spend time with my children who keep me young. And uh, so when you come in from a busy day and they say, can you get on your bike and take me to the park? Um, I find that very relaxing. Um, I also play the drums. So, oh, amazing. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, and I've, I've played the drums for many years. So I play in two bands and um, I find that incredibly relaxing and, and mindful. Um, and that keeps me going. And also, you know, we do gigs and live shows, so you get to meet new people and different people you'd never have met before. I love that. Um, and that's a real outlet for me. So, um, yeah, um, that's what I tend to do to relax and unwind. People think drumming is really physical. It is. It's very physical. <laughs> but it's also um, very mindful as well because you have to be in that kind of space yeah of that particular moment in time and everything else just disappears it's fantastic I, I think music movement and rhythm are so therapeutic it's a very there's a very primal human thing about it and um, when people ask me what do you do I, I woke up yesterday with a really weird anxious energy that I couldn't shake and I find the best way of me getting rid of it is movement so I went to a spin class <laughs> <laughs> so I, lo- I love dancing sometimes singing just singing out loud belting at the top of your lungs gets that nervous anxious energy out for you it's drumming caroline allison's outside with a whippet um for me it's singing and dancing and i hope everybody who's listening is going to go away and belt out a good old tune now um thank you both so much um honestly it's been a pleasure speaking to you and i'm hoping that everyone that's been listening has found it just as useful and helpful so my thank you to allison bussey and caroline dugan williams for joining me on things which service for NHS Shropshire, Telford and Rekin, talking all things mental well-being. If you want to find out more, you can do so by visiting thinkwhichservice.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening and bye-bye. <laughs>